Okay. I don't know if everybody heard this meeting is being recorded, but that works. Hi, my name is Jess. I'm a compulsive overeater. I I know and believe today that I'm a compulsive overeater because I've been a member of Overeaters Anonymous for a long time. I didn't really know what I was when I got here. Um, I get to be the speaker on the leg of the stool that we call spiritual recovery. And I thought what I would do is just start, I would start by qualifying, right? I'll tell you, I'll just tell you a little bit about my story and how I got here and what it's been like since I've been here. And then I thought, then I'll talk for a little bit about how, um, how I built this spiritual leg of recovery. And I hope I remember to always say, I don't feel like I built it. I just feel like I participated. I've participated in this experience that has given, is giving me, has given and is giving me spiritual recovery that I didn't even know I needed or wanted when I got here. Oh, and I'm so grateful to be here and that I was asked to be here and that all of you guys came and we get to do this together because um, my experience, my experience in my life and not even, I was going to qualify by saying before I got here, but really my experience in my life is I can't, I can't do, I can't do things alone that I'm not supposed to do alone. And that really is most of life, it turns out for me. Um, oh, here are some, here are just some facts and numbers, partly because I don't always like to share them. And also just because when I listen to speakers, it helps me if I don't have to do a lot of math or try to figure stuff out. I came to my first OA meeting, I think it was January 9th of 1990. Um, I was 24 and I didn't look body wise, you know, I, I didn't look body wise a whole lot different than I look now. I weighed just a little more, um, but I had a whole suite of activities that I did to try to not get very heavy and try to stay, you know, I was always trying to get about 20 pounds lighter than I am now, which is not a good look on me. Um, I came to my first meeting in 1990 when I was 24. That makes me 55. Now I'll be 56 next month. I got abstinent on January 29th, 1991. That's my abstinence date and it hasn't changed, um, but it was really painful to get there. Um, I live in Port Angeles, Washington on the Olympic Peninsula. I've lived here for 28 years um, or 29 now. And the other stuff I like to, I always like to tell my age because it's my secret hope that you'll think I'm 30 or something. And um, I'll tell you that I meditate every day. And I used to not want anybody to ever know that because for me, I thought if they know I meditate every day, they'll wonder um, what's wrong with me or my meditation program that I'm not more Zen or something. So I just say all of those things to get them out of the way. And, um, and just so you know, <laughs> so I went to my first meet. Oh, I also, because a lot of people are here from the Seattle area and have maybe been at meetings in the Seattle area for some time. I just like to tell you if I, rem if I'm reminding you a lot of someone with some of my mannerisms or my, the way I look or my voice, and you're trying to figure out who it is, it might be someone else, but my sister, Rachel T is part of o OA in the Seattle area. And I know that she's, I know that some of you know her and um, I love it when people think like, oh, that's who it was. And I also mention her because she's the person who got me here. Um, the reason I went to my first OA meeting in January of 1990 is because um, I was 24, the magic age. I always thought I'd, I always, I always knew that if I could just get to be 24, everything would be great. I would be grown up, I would be amazing, I would have this fabulous adult body with, you know, adult woman, I really wanted big breasts, you guys, as that is what I wanted. And I would be mature and 
everything would be amazing. And there I was at, oh, and also I really desperately wanted to be like, have a cool boyfriend and work in the mountains and be like a groovy, awesome kind of hippie person. And at 24, I wasn't super groovy, awesome hippie, but I kind of, I was granola. I'm a granola person. And, um, and I had all that. I had this great boyfriend that I really liked. We owned a pickup truck and we worked seasonally for the national park service. And we got these great jobs where we could live in the wilderness. And we went out to cool music and it was just, we shopped at the bulk co-ops. And yet I felt like a mess. I was like a self-hating, explosive anger, miserable mess. And I really felt like if I could just weigh less and have those bigger breasts that I never really got, um, that my life would be so much better and I would get along better with my family and I wouldn't feel and be so dysfunctional. And I had this sister who... um, when we were growing up, and I forgot to ask for permission to say this last night, but I usually ask all the time. I had a little sister who in our family, I was the really peppy, energetic one. And she um, she was just kind of fat and mean and an atheist. That is That was kind of her role in our family, I guess. And I don't know if anybody else saw it that way, but I kind of, as we, as we got into those teenage years, she and I were, we were just equally dysfunctional in our dysfunctional family of angry women who didn't know how to relate to each other. And suddenly she changed. She lost a lot of weight. She, um, she'd spent a year overseas. And when she came back and she was in college, she got into some outside help and started going to OA. And the thing that really caught my attention was that she, um, all of a sudden, she was getting along with the people in our family and she was, things were kind of rolling off her back and she wasn't fighting and she didn't engage. Um, She just was really functional and that blew me away. And anytime I brought anything up, she would just say, well, I go to OA now and it's really helping me. Yeah, I go to OA. I really like it. It's really helping me. And then when I would ask her about it, she would say, yeah, I learned it's not really about the food and that God can do for me what I can't do for myself. And that was the jaw dropper, right? What? I said, but you're, Rachel, you don't even believe in God. And she said, and she probably said a lot of things. The thing I remember that she said is, she goes, oh yeah, I thought I did it, but I went to OA and it just turns out God's not what I thought God was. And I'm okay with God now. That's, and those are the only really things she said. And she never said to me, you could really use OA or you could use a program of recovery. She never said any of that. She just did that thing we do where you plant the seed and I'm sorry, you guys, I haven't told you anything about my eating history. I'll try to go there in a minute, but please believe me. Like I am, I am absolutely a compulsive overeater. And I know today I'm no, I don't think I'm any more than or any less than anybody else in the room. Um, but what really planted the seed for me was how my sister, who I'd seen be just as unmanageable to be around as I felt in our family, she transformed. Um, She was not and is not like perfect or anything, but she transformed in how she could be with people, the difficult people like me. And it was hard. I mean, and it was just shocking to see. Plus I thought she just looked beautiful. And, um, and I really wanted that. And I think it took a little while for that to flower, but I was living in Tucson, Arizona and um, with everything dreamy except me. And that's when this little, I don't know, awareness or voice, this little thing just said, you know, why don't you try one of those meetings? Because 
you really believe that your life would be perfect if you could just lose 20 pounds and the way to lose weight is not rocket science, right? It's eat less, exercise more. Don't be so crazy with that. You know, like just don't be so crazy with your activities. Just eat less and exercise more. It's very simple. Yet you can't do that to save your life. That's a little bit of a problem with food, don't you think? And I even argued with that because what I said was, yeah, I don't need a food program. I need a program that teaches me how to relate to people. And I had heard of a different program. And I, I mean, well, I had heard of a different 12-step fellowship that seemed like it was about relationships. And I decided I should go to that. And I even found it in the little Tucson, whatever the Tucson newspaper you could pick up at the store was. And it had a box. I don't even know. This is probably what we go to the internet for now, but it had a little box that said all the 12-step meetings. And I found this fellowship I wanted to go to, but it was on the other side of Tucson. And we had this 1963 Chevrolet pickup truck, three-quarter ton, giant behemoth. I would have to hold onto the thing on the roof near the gun rack to like swing my legs in. It was kind of hysterical. There was no way I was going to drive that thing across town. But there was an OA meeting a mile from my house at a time that was easy to ride my bike to. That's how I went to OA. That's how I got there. Um, and at my first meeting, I got there late. And I didn't say anything and, and they do they did the sharing in the circle. And when it got to me, I said what everyone else was saying. Hi, I'm Jessica, I'm a compulsive overreader. I like to pass, thank you. So they didn't even know they had a newcomer. Um, but at the end, they did that thing where we shake hands and we say, they, at least they said, keep coming back, it works. I think they said it works. I know they said, keep coming back. And something in me, just went freak and it did, okay. That's how I became a member of OA. Um, and now I will tell you, <laughs> I, I guess it's really fitting that I forgot to tell you anything about my relationship with food other than I know today I'm a compulsive overeater. Because when I got here, when I got to that first meeting in Tucson and then I went to OA two or three times a week, um, like I just went to these meetings near my house and they carried the message of recovery to me and I cut out two ingredients. I cut out white sugar and white flour because I heard that's what people were doing. Um, I really believed that I didn't actually have a problem with food. I just had a problem with my thinking about food. And um, as soon as I cut out the ingredients that I heard were kind of dangerous, I felt like that should solve it. And I, um, being of the sort of happy to be mindset, I, um, you know, I eat a lot of very healthy foods. I did then I do now, but back then I did not have any boundaries around anything. And I just switched from, from controlled binges on all foods to controlled binges on, um, what my first sponsor called um, tasteless dry foods with few calories um, or like really nice foods that just didn't have those ingredients in them. And I even had trouble seeing that at the time. I um, One of the things that I know about myself now is I'm, I'm, I feel very fortunate that I grew up in, I grew up in a, in a nice, um, kind of probably upper middle class Seattle family with a beautiful view of the lake and the problems that we had were deep under the surface um, until my parents got divorced and then they weren't then they were right there um, and I have a beautiful education that my parents made sure I got and hounded me mercilessly until I developed a work ethic and started getting good grades and got my degrees and all of that stuff. And um, one of the downsides of that for me is that I have a very sharp, always functioning, super intellectual brain that it turns out can justify and intellectualize and rationalize lots of things. And I, I needed, it turns out, I had to be, I had to be a member of OA for over a year listening to people talk about 
their abstinence and the way that they didn't eat compulsively to even begin to see some of my behaviors with food, like how, um, and, and I had to be abstinent, had to have boundaries around my food and be working the first three steps with the guidance of an abstinent sponsor who was very clear about her recovery and did not engage in a lot of confusion or um, dithering because I, I have done a lot of dithering, you know, I don't know. I don't know. It's so confusing. I don't know. What do I do? It's a, did I get too much? Did I get too little? I don't know. And she didn't tolerate that very well. Um, it was in having boundaries around my food and working the first three steps that I started to see, oh my goodness, I have been ruled by food and food thoughts my whole life or most of it that I remember. Um, I didn't, I just didn't think of it as stuff. I, it never occurred to me that not everybody first makes a baked good before they make the baked good they're giving as a present so that they can eat the first baked good and therefore have the second baked good available to give to the person they're baking it for. That was a really great, like I, discovered that all by myself in sixth grade and thought that was a really good solution to this problem that sometimes I would bake things for friends and not have any left to give them. And it's never because I sat down and just went, it's because I did the, here's a little moderate bit for me. That's my 20 minutes. Um, and that is what I learned actually when I started working the steps with this abstinent sponsor is the first writing assignment she asked me to do was write about a, a recent binge. And I said, oh, but I've never had a binge because a binge is like 20,000 calories all taken at one sitting, probably without silverware. I don't think I said that to her, but I think she understood that that is what I meant. And she said, that's okay. Just write about an uncomfortable experience you've had with food sometime in the last, I don't know, like a little bit, you know, days, weeks, months, even a year ago, just write about that. And as I wrote about it, it started to seem really like what I was doing with food was very, very controlled, but it was like controlled insanity, right? Um, so just to finish up this part is most of my behaviors with food were try to open the floodgates a little bit and slam them down. I'll measure this out. And when it's done, I won't have any more. And then my brain would work and I would go measure a little more out and have a little more. And sometimes it would proceed all the way to like tying a bag and throwing it in the back seat of my car as I drove and then driving and trying to get the bag. So um, I have not had to do any of those things since January 29th of 1991. Um, and all that happened was I showed up at a meeting just flat, just totally flattened and nothing extraordinary had happened. Um, I didn't do anything different on January 28th than I'd done any other weeknight um, cooking dinner for myself and my partner. I don't know, I just felt completely flattened. And honestly, I think it's because I'd moved to Madison to go to graduate school in Madison, Wisconsin. And this woman was at every meeting I went to. I didn't like her. I didn't think I wanted what she had because here's how I understood, find someone who has what you want and ask how they're getting it, which is what is read at a lot of meetings about sponsorship is um, I thought, well, I'm 25 years old and I have hair that kind of reaches you know, under my armpit and I have a boyfriend. Um, and what I want is I want a woman who's about 32 years old with hair that goes down to her hips and looks really pretty and um, is married and has two little kids and has great life. That's what I want. And now, like now I have compassion for that and just a little bit of laughter because that's what I wanted to be. 
But that I don't believe is what OA means when we say find someone who has what you want in OA and ask them to be your sponsor. My understanding of that is find somebody who has some recovery from the disease of compulsive overeating and ask them what they're doing to get it and then do what they're doing. That's how I understand it now. So this woman who was short and blonde and wore too much makeup and a leather coat, which I didn't approve of at the time, she was at every meeting I went to and all she would do, all she would do is talk about abstinence and boundaries around your food and work the steps like your life depends on it. And she knew the big book and she went to meetings all the time and she said things that pierced me and I found offensive and I thought she was talking to me. She said things like, if I eat a bite of anything between my planned meals, that is a break of my abstinence. And I can't afford that because I'm a compulsive reader and I could die. And I believe that I got abstinent as the result of being around this person carrying a very clear and focused message of recovery and um, extending the hand of OA to me because we ended up being the only two people at a meeting together in January, which was kind of my worst nightmare. And she asked hard offensive questions like, are you abstinent? And which I know the answer, the answer is yes, right? But then she asked more hard questions like, what does your abstinence look like? And how do you know you're abstinent? And what do you do every day to keep your abstinence? I did not know any of those answers. And a week later, when I showed up just totally defeated at a meeting and I had no more quotes from the big book, no more, nothing snappy to say, nothing I'd memorized or heard somebody who was abstinent say at the previous meeting. I just felt so defeated by food. She offered to be my sponsor and I accepted. I said, okay. And then she made suggestions like, let's put some boundaries around your food. And I had no comeback. So I said, okay, that is how my recovery has gone actually is every time I remember, and I'll just, I want to stop telling my story and talk about um, the steps and the recovery that I found in the last 30 years. Cause um, now I have 30 years of continuous abstinence and continuous involvement in OA and continuous involvement with life and the steps and, you know, kind of, sometimes circling the drain, it feels like, but not with food. Um, when I remember that I got here from total defeat, and I believe this is what Tom read in the meditation this morning, which was just, that was beautiful. I'm so glad I was there. Um, that's a little side trip. I went to the, I went to the meditation session this morning before this meeting and the for today was read. Um, and then we all meditated together. And I think that was just the gist of it is when I just let go of all of that stuff, I can do it, I can do it, I can figure this out, I can get on top of it. What am I supposed to do? Oh, my goodness. Um, I got this, I figured it out. It's this, when I let go of all of that, and just do the, oh, I am out of answers. That is when help arrives and I'm available to accept it. And, um, and then when that woman offered to sponsor me, I was really defeated for probably three days. I just felt terrible. And I did everything she suggested. And somewhere in those three days, I said, okay, I've been around for a while and I would like to work a step a day. Um, and I didn't say, so I can be an old timer in a week and a half, but that's what I meant. And she said, she didn't say that's crazy. You're crazy. And let's let the program and the higher power that you don't know you need so badly do the work. She said, Oh, she said, I don't read that fast, Jessica. So let's do a step a week. And then she did say, and then you can still be an old timer in three months. Okay. And I just said, okay. And we just did it. And we started working together and the way she sponsored me is she had me call her every morning at what I thought was an unreasonable time. It was a, it was a college student time. It was probably six or six 30 or seven, whatever it was. Um, it was the time that you call someone who has to go to class in the morning. I would call her every day. I would tell her my food for the day. 
And I would read to her what I had written on the little topic she gave me, which if we'd had the workbook at the time, it was probably questions from the workbook. Um, and about two weeks in, I felt a little cocky and I wanted to do it my way. And um, whatever it was, it just felt terrible. And her response was just, that sounds really scary to me, Jessica. Is that sober? Like, can you do that and be sober? And that was scary to hear. And it's really nice to just realize, oh, pretty much this is really, I have just told you the story of the last 30 years, except less with food and more with all of the other parts. And for me, this is the whole like spiritual leg of the stool. So that's what I would just want to fix my timer so I can talk a little bit about that. I think what I'd like to do is just tell you a little bit about working the steps is my first what do we do? I think it was probably close to a year of just participating in these meetings on the mostly on campus of University of Wisconsin and um, and then deciding that I was kind of an old timer at three months and I got an opportunity to go on a, a school study trip in Costa Rica where I was on a bus with a bunch of other graduate students and we went to different areas and did research projects. It was really amazing. And um, what a crazy thing for somebody who has worked steps one through four to do <laughs> Un unattended. And I went on that trip and something I'm really grateful for is I had to do all of the things that I had been taught to do in my first three months there. And they were, they were all of these spiritual practices, right? When I started working with that first sponsor, the things that she asked me to do right away were, she said, let's put boundaries around your food because that's what abstinence is, Jessica. It's boundaries around your food. And I will tell you, and this was, so this was 1991 and the 12 Steps and 12 Traditions of Overeaters Anonymous were in process. They were being written, but it hadn't, nothing had been published yet. And the definition of abstinence that we have now had not been written. You know, abstinence is the action of refraining from compulsive eating and compulsive food behaviors while working to attain or maintain a healthy body weight, something like that. That wasn't part of our meeting formats or jargon or anything. Um, so she how this absence is putting boundaries around your food and going to any lengths to stay within them, staying within them. And let's just keep it really simple. Cause I had some ideas about abstinence that involved eating half, half cup portions of food. I didn't like, but thought of as diet foods. And she was like, I, I don't think that's healthier saying Jessica, let's find a way of eating that's moderate. Um, she asked me to commit my food and she asked me to do two things every day. And it was just, she might've said, pray to God for help being abstinent and then say, thank you to God in a prayer at night. And when I explained all the reasons I couldn't do that and whatever, um, she said, okay. <laughs> she said, let's do this. Do you have any past religious experience or do you have any past negative experience with being on your knees? And I, I grew up, um, I grew up in a mixed, mixed faith marriage. Um, and my religious education is not a Christian education. Um, I have an academic education about religious and religions, but I said, no, uh, -uh. I, I've kind of prayed on my knees when I've gone to church with friends or my grandma and grandpa, but no, I don't have any negative experience with that. And she says, okay, well, it's a physical posture of humility, Jessica, would you be willing to just get on your knees and, you know, talk to a God of your understanding? And then I explained stuff about God of my understanding and how I, um, I liked to challenge the rabbi. I have a nice Jewish education. I like to challenge the rabbi in as many ways as possible. And then I would do stuff like walk around and I would do this as like an eight-year-old. Okay, God, say, okay, God, if you're there, set that rock on fire right now. Do it. I'm watching the rock. God, do that. Do it. And the rock would not burst into flames. And so then I'd be like, huh, that was kind of my relationship <laughs> with anything bigger than me. Um, 
it seemed. And I don't think I said all of that at the time, but she did just say, she's like, okay, how about this, Jessica? Can you just get on your knees and talk to the corner of the room? Talk to the corner of your bed. And I said, I, okay, I think it's stupid, but I, I will do that. And that is what I did. And I thought it was very convenient. I didn't want to forget because after three days of abstinence, I couldn't believe it. I couldn't believe it. I think at 48 hours of abstinence, I, um, and I know this because we had a notebook that would go around at every meeting. I went to the same meeting Monday, Wednesday, Friday at um, college lunch and we would sign in and there was a column for feelings, put your feet, like, how are you feeling? And on January 29th, I had, which was like Wednesday or something, I had written big, sad, big, sad. And um, cause I just felt so consumed with flatness and defeat. And at the very next meeting, this is also how I know my abstinence date is I had to go back and see like, when was that? I did not intend to get abstinent the day I got abstinent. And um, cause if I could have picked my abstinence date it would have been in like 1979 or something, right? Certainly it would have been January 9th, 1990 the day I went to my first meeting. Um, but the very next meeting, so 48 hours later, I wrote, it works, it really does. That's how long it took for me to feel like this feeling of relief. I don't know where I was going with that, except I think it's that something magical seemed to have happened when I accepted direction and I did the stupid things she said, like call her every morning at a stupid time and tell her my stupid food, because one of the, I knew she weighed and measured her food and I knew a lot of abstinent people did. And I said, I'm not weighing and measuring my food. That is sick and controlling. And she goes, okay. There's nothing that says you have to weigh and measure your food. People do it for a sense of freedom and ease, Jessica. Just what is abstinent for you? Like what's what will be moderate? You know a lot about food. I'm sure you're very smart and you probably know a lot about nutrition. And then we just put boundaries around my food and um and I would call her and tell her the boundaries around my food. And I would just like to skip ahead for anyone I might've offended with the weight and measuring is I got abstinent believing that weight and measuring was sick and controlling. And I stayed abstinent um, by weight and measuring my food because there was a great sense of freedom, ease and structure. And then I didn't have to go through in my head about was that the right amount of this food or did I get too much or did I get too little? Just made things so much easier. And the great thing about OA is OA has no opinion on that. I, I think that's I'm, that's still true, right? We, there are some there's some food plan options provided in our Dignity of Choice booklet now, and there was none of that when I got here in '91, but there had been before. But that's to help us um, have our own sober relationship with food, is my understanding. It's not a dictate on how we're supposed to eat to be abstinent. I'm so grateful for that. Um, where I was going with this is she just gave me these things to do and it included getting on my knees and saying please to the corner of my bed and saying thank you to the corner of my bed and going to meetings. And also in Madison, Wisconsin in 1991, the culture of OA and there were no subsets. There was no, there were, there were none of the subsets or anything. There was just OA and there were what my sponsor called eating meetings where you could go and there was a lot of support for I compulsively today, but it's okay. I'm a compulsive overeater. I'm gentle with myself and I work the steps and there were other meetings that were like, you don't eat no matter what. And you ask something greater than yourself and you work the steps out of the big book and, and there were options in between. And we all just went to the meetings that felt safe and comfortable and supportive. And, um, and I, while I sometimes get judgments and opinions on the different meetings, I also have to say like, I only got abstinent from being at all the different meetings and from feeling like I belonged at all the different meetings. And um, I know I carried a huge sense of shame for doing things like binging on fruit juice, sweetened whole grain, items on my way to and from meetings, but convincing myself it wasn't a binge, that it was just a snack for my um, 
blood sugar stuff. And, you know, I am just so glad we're all here. And so if it sounds like anything I'm saying is shaming or judgmental, I deeply apologize. That is not the intent. I am so grateful that I don't have to do the things with food that I used to have to do. And I believe that is available to all of us. And I believe there's lots of different ways to be in recovery from compulsive overeating. And I, um, this learning to step away from judgment and fear and shame, this is an ongoing process for me. Um, and the thing that has kept me here and the thing that has given me a relationship with something greater than me that for today, I call God because it's shorter and more efficient than saying the power that I don't understand that is greater than anything I can comprehend and that I don't know how to relate to it, but I see value in lots of religious precepts and concepts, but not all of them. Like it's just shorter. I like to say higher power or higher power of my understanding. I do HP a lot with my sponsor and my sponsees. And also I'm okay saying God because much like my sister told me all those years ago, like, oh yeah, I found a relationship with the God of my understanding and God is not anything like what I thought God was. And I don't mean the things that I thought people meant when they talked about God. And, um, and one of the things that has brought me there is just doing the things that my sponsor suggested I do. And that was that act of get on my knees, talk to it, work the steps as she understood them, as she had worked them with her sponsor. And um, she came from, she had come from Boston in the nineties, which I think had just a really thriving, oh, you mm, maybe very rigid community. I don't know. She brought some rigidity. And um, now that I have children in their twenties, I laugh at how like, oh yeah, my children know everything and they're very clear about it. And that's what we were probably like, this sponsor and I in our 20s. Like she certainly had a lot of firm opinions about OA recovery and they served me very well. They do serve me very well. She also was a recovering alcoholic. Um, she is a recovering alcoholic who was, I believe, really connected to the big book. And that for me has been a lifesaver too. And, you know, my own coming to understand that I also, I'm an alcoholic, a very tricky, sneaky alcoholic who rationalized and justified her whole relationship with alcohol, much like with food. Um, and that measuring, weighing and measuring my alcohol for six weeks before it just seemed like way too much trouble. That has been, this, that's another fellowship, but being connected to the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, the 12 steps, um, as they're written in the original text and some of the, the great and respected speakers um, within AA has been so helpful for me in my OA recovery and so helpful for me in getting me over some of my prejudices and preconceptions about um, God and how God works and, and, um, and also that stumbling block of, and I, I have to put my hands on my hips when I say it, the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous was written by, you know, misogynistic, patriarchal, middle-class white men in 1939. And that does not apply to a feminist liberal like me. And because I was stuck right in the middle of all of these very clear recovery-focused meetings, um, and in which they read a lot of literature, including the OA literature once it was being published, once it was published, um, I got connected to the traditions and I heard people talk about the traditions and I got connected right away to resign from the debating society and labels like um, liberal, patriarchal, misogynistic, uh, feminist, all of those things, those are all outside of being a suffering compulsive overeater um, or compulsive undereater or anorexic or exercise bulimic or restrictor. Like in the nineties, it was popular to say a lot of different things, different labels for ourselves. And 
I kept getting brought back to this concept of resign from the debating society and leave all of that stuff outside of the rooms because I was at meetings with um, people I would not normally mix with, right? Especially when I would drive 30 minutes to go to what seemed like a very hardcore AA meeting on the outskirts of Madison where all the kind of rural farmers were. Um, and, and, you know, in the last, well, whenever there was a pre presidential election, um, same thing, right? We leave all that stuff outside of the rooms because I come in here, I came in here a suffering, struggling, compulsive overeater who really didn't want to have to do that stuff anymore. And because of this program of recovery, which has written into it that if I want to live sober in all areas, including, and for me really primarily with food, um, although there isn't room in my food sobriety for alcohol or some of the other things I've needed to put boundaries around, I have to develop a relationship with a power greater than myself. And I have to be willing to get it wherever it's offered. And it's gonna come in some really funny forms, right? Like people who I don't agree with and who don't agree with me on all sorts of other things, so what? They saved my life and I might help save theirs. And when we're in meetings together, oh my goodness. And that for me is really, that is a really spiritual piece too, is that my opinions about the other stuff, um, some of them I think are really valuable and important and others I just have to roll my eyes at and let go of now. And none of them are relevant when it comes to this recovery that we do together. Um, I hadn't intended to go there. And I just, I guess that's an example of the spiritual leg of my program now is I have had so many fixed ideas about what my recovery in a way will look like, how I will fit in with my peers here, the things that I need to do or that you might need to do. Um, what God needs to be for me, whether or not I can subscribe to your idea of God. I've had so many fixed ideas and so much of the last really 31 years um, since I got here has been about just having to let go of them. Um, so I think, let me see. Yep, I have two seconds. Okay. I'm kind of, this is like, I'm kind of proud of myself of learning to use my timer and trying to keep myself a little bit on track. I didn't write anything out and I did say a bunch of, um, of prayers to be useful. Um, that is the biggest piece I understand right now about a spiritual connection is just being able to be useful. And that sometimes the ways I'm going to be useful is by um, maybe not looking the way I, I wish I would look or being the way I would hope to be. And, um, and just getting some peace with that, just getting some peace. So the thing I wanted to tell you about, let's see, I wanted to tell you just, I wanted to qualify and tell you a little bit about my story. I wanted to make sure you know um, that I'm a real compulsive overeater and I have um, like a real true, solid, clear, clean abstinence. Um, and that I know that and measure that by asking for it every day and saying thank you for it and by being available to sponsor and by having a sponsor and that my relationship with food today is less controlled than it was for a lot of my years of abstinence. And yet I still have, I have boundaries around my food and there are ingredients that I don't eat because um, as my first sponsor said, I don't see the point of eating any less than a bathtub full of them and trying to have, and clearly a bathtub is not a serving. <laughs> That's not a portion. And what is the point of eating a small amount? It's just easier to not eat those things or those foods at all. Um, and I wanted to, 
I wanted to make sure I told you about how I get this spiritual leg that I feel like I, I just follow the directions and I just have had to take those actions that I think brought me there. There's, um, there's an OA member in Seattle who I heard, I heard her give a talk on tape because I listened to that is one of the best and most supportive things for my food sobriety. I'll also, I'll just back up a little and tell you that sponsor that I got when I was in school in Madison, Wisconsin, and she was 22 or 23, right? She'd come from rural Wisconsin and had a very rigid religious upbringing. And I just remember her, she always talked about food sobriety, which is a very helpful concept for me. But I remember her saying, um, she said, I don't, I don't like the term abstinence. Abstinence for me sounds like it's about never having sex. And that is just, she goes, I have just had so many confused ideas about sex and sexuality. I just cannot use a word that sounds like I will never have sex. And so I just can't use that word. So I say food sobriety. And I thought, okay. Um, and I really like it. I really like it. Then I had, a, I got a sponsee who, um, did not eat in a way that I believed in at all. And the American Dietetic Association would not have approved of the way she ate had she asked for their opinion. And that was hugely helpful and spiritual for me because I called my sponsor up and said, so-and-so asked me to sponsor her, but then when she told me her food, she's eating at fast food restaurants three times a day, and it's crazy what she's eating. It's just outrageously crazy. And my sponsor said, is she putting boundaries around her food? And then I would say, yes, but they're outrageous boundaries. And I would say what she was eating. <laughs> and my sponsor would say, ah, she has one of each menu item you know, that she's ordered. And that's kind of a normal person's fast food meal, Jessica. That sounds like a boundary to me. Oh my God. So I sponsored her with the full conviction that, um, what is this going to last like a week, right? You can't be absent on fast food stuff. And, but I didn't say that to her. I said to her the same stuff my sponsor said to me, please call me at, you know, whatever unreasonable time in the morning and tell me your food. And I'm going to ask you a question and please write just one or two paragraphs. Don't write an essay, do bullet points because this isn't for a grade or anything. And um, I did that and darn if she didn't stay abstinent. And um, so today <laughs> she and I are good friends and I go to her for help with an outside issue that has to do with healing. And also um, the American Dietetic Association would just like, bow in awe and wonder, I believe, to the way she eats. I certainly do. I think it's beautiful. And it, she just was transformed. Um, and I don't know, maybe there's people who stayed absent for 30 years on fast food too. I don't have any opinion about that. It just doesn't apply to me. And um, it wasn't lost on me that I tried desperately to be abstinent I, I really desperately wanted to be abstinent and food sober, eating only foods that, you know, all the good hippies approve of, but I couldn't have boundaries around them. And she and some other people I sponsored in Wisconsin got abstinent eating foods that um, no self-respecting earth muffin approves of. <laughs> it's just beautiful, I think. And it's really helped me get a, just get away. I heard, um, I heard someone in a meeting a long time ago say that she got to OA a very outspoken, rigid um, vegetarian, and she was committed to staying that way and making sure everyone knew how important it was. But then when she got here, she was so desperate that if someone told her the way to be abstinent was to eat meat three times a day, she would gladly have done it. She just didn't care. She would do anything. And, um, I don't know, for me, that's part of the spiritual solution is um, that didn't happen. Anyways, that is an outside issue too, totally separate. I just get to be a part of this thing today. Um, 
And the, so in the last 30 years, like I'll tell you, at least my experience, my experience coming from um, what looked like a really high function. I mean, I, th I think I count as a high functioning person until we go inside and then I'm, you know, just as dysfunctional as the next dysfunctional person and probably no more or no less. And um, my recovery with food has been this inside job that I needed help for and the outside help that I needed has all been in the room, really all been in the rooms of OA. Um, when I had great health insurance as a graduate student, um, it was free and covered to work with a nutritionist and I did that. And when I was pregnant, I worked with a nutritionist a little bit. Um, and mostly my relationship with food has, has been shaped by the abstinent people in OA and my spiritual relationship has been almost exclusively shaped by um, following the directions of a sponsor and listening to people sharing and reading all the stuff like all the lifelines and anything I could get both OA and AA literature and it's, you know, AA literature is approved here. <laughs> and um, those have been really helpful and mostly listening to people and taking the actions. And what I didn't expect, I think, well, what I really didn't expect, I mean, I got here at 24, I got abstinent at 25, I married the cool boyfriend. Um, and then all of the life stuff, really all of the life stuff that's happened to me has happened abstinent as a member of Overeaters Anonymous, participating in meetings, having a sponsor, being sponsored. And um, the longer I live, the more stuff there is, right? And um, my mom got a terminal diagnosis probably the week I got abstinent um, and, or maybe before, but, you know, she told me after I'd moved to Wisconsin and my, my mom died of cancer um, when I was four years, four years abstinent and almost four years sober. And, um, and that was, that was huge. <laughs> that was huge because my mom was my biggest resentment. And I'm so very thankful that I had that sponsor who didn't have anything to say about my mom, just said, I have to work the steps like my life depends on it. And I have to resign from the debating society about God. And let's just work these steps, Jessica, and all that stuff you're worrying about, like your mom and what a pain in the butt she is and how she's going to die. And that boyfriend from high school that you think is secretly your soulmate. And let's just not worry about any of that. Let's just work the steps right now, because if you are abstinent and you work the steps, then you are God's problem today, Jessica. You are not your problem anymore. You are God's problem. Um, that is a very spiritual piece of information, actually. And I feel like one of this, one of the things I want to tell you is I would call her up because there's so many parallels right now with my life at 30, 30 years. So 30 years later, I'll just here's what's happened in 30 years. Um my mom died and it ended up being a really huge, and given that it was the death of my first parent, it was a really positive experience. I'm not saying I was positive that she died. I'm, I'm just saying that given what it was, oh my goodness, the 12 steps, let me make amends to her, have a relationship with her, have a trust that things would be okay. Um, in her dying, she brought me and my sister and each of our husbands, because we were both married, like really together, really, really together so that we could have the relationship that we have now that is very tight and close and totally imperfect. Um, and, you know, I got to, so I had infertility. I had, I have two children because I went to fertility clinics and it worked for me. I got to be a foster parent. Um which has a lot of ups and downs and stuff. You know, I've gotten to have some great jobs and some hard jobs. I got to have a brain tumor. Um, I got to know a lot of really awesome people in a lot of awesome places. When I got my brain tumor diagnosis, my sponsor had had one a few years before, so I knew who to call. Um, and then I've had a sponsee and a really good friend who a lot of you guys who know, know Steve from Olympia, you know, that's, I was just right in between my sponsor having a brain tumor and my Steve and uh, my sponsee up here having 
brain tumors. And, um, you know, I just got to have an abstinent experience with a brain tumor and brain surgery. And I got to live and be okay. And I just got to have another brain tumor experience um, this fall. Um, and the last two years have been really something that as I'm talking and thank you, because this is a huge gift is there are so many parallels for me between being a desperate, willing, but ungracious newcomer in Overeaters Anonymous, wanting to have things my way on my terms and just like giving that up and accepting what was offered with food and kind of being open to this whole growth experience that for me was being new in OA and also probably a lot of being 25 to 30 years old, which for me was just huge. So many between 25 and 32, right? I got absent, I got married, I got sober. I got a school degree, I got a job, I got two children, well, I got one child and um, so an idea of what to do to get the next. I got a host of friends and there's all this amazing stuff. And in the last five years, I've had all sorts of stuff that doesn't so much have, it doesn't really have to do with food, but it has to do with um, seeing foundational cracks in my marriage and taking a series, just a series of desperate actions to try to fix my marriage that contributed to the breaking of my marriage and um, leaving my marriage in a way that the cost was super high and losing all my friends and um, most of my community and having the second brain tumor. I mean, it just, it's a really big kind of overwhelming list. And I am so, I cannot believe, I can't really believe sometimes that, nope, I didn't go back to food. I didn't go out and get drunk and pick up recreational drug use. Um, I got to get sober in a third fellowship, which my, you know, I don't think my sponsors, I don't think anybody would recommend taking on a third fellowship. And that's kind of outside my belief system too. And I believe the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous can address any issue. You know, I have friends and relatives who the 12 steps of Overeaters Anonymous have taken care of everything for them, drugs, alcohol, whatever, else. And I have other friends who've needed help of outside fellowships of other fellowships. And, and for me, I have got to be a brand new, desperate, willing, totally ragged newcomer in this other area. And it is so beautiful <laughs> and so hopeful. I just, it just folded right in. And um, there have been some parts about the pandemic that have been really difficult and awful for me, like I'm sure for everybody. And there've been some parts that have been really great. And um, I think the reason I'm trying to draw these parallel lines is because I have had to get a whole new, I don't know if it's a new relationship with God of my understanding or just a different level of a relationship with God of my understanding. Um, in those first few years of abstinence and working the steps and having um, sort of grown up life come fall into place, I had to learn to do a lot of things um, like asking God for help every day and thanking God every day and um, developing the like the 11th step. I, I worked all 12 steps in that first year or two and I continue to work them. I, I love step studies. Um, I appreciate the really kind of hardcore stuff. I had somebody at a retreat one time when I told them how I work my program said, oh, that's called AWOL, a way of life. Or, you know, you work a how programmer. And I don't know, I just, I'm glad I just work a structured program. And, um, and then I've continued to work a structured program and that I, I have a beautiful, amazing OA sponsor who I deeply respect and deeply love and want what she has and um, and stay in contact with. Um, and also because I live in this rural area in, in Washington and I could, this is how I got my sponsor that I have today is I would see her whenever I went to OA events in the Seattle area, but there was nobody on the Olympic Peninsula with long-term abstinence. Um, 
And so for a while, I just had my, my AA sponsor who doesn't have a food problem. And, and then that just wasn't okay anymore. And I got this OA sponsor and, and yet I don't have three separate programs. I have one program of recovery that's founded on the 12 steps and depends completely on me being available to a relationship with a power greater than myself that I do not need to understand. I heard someone say that at a meeting in Madison, this guy, you know, he's probably 40. So he seemed very mature to me. And he would always say, God is, I don't understand God and don't need to understand God as long as God understands me or something like that. I just use these pieces. These pieces just clicked into place. Right. And, um, I lost that little thread, whatever it was, but I know these last few years, like I have just had to make myself available all over again. And, um, one of the things that's happened in these last, so maybe it's just helpful. I've never had this long to talk before and I think it must be close to, yep. Okay, cool. So maybe about 10 more minutes, Jess. Yes, thank you. I know it's not funny. I thought I'll be done in 10 minutes, but then. (laughs) Perfect. There's, and thank you for listening. Like, thank you for listening. I don't know if it's, I know I'm spoiled from the pandemic for not having to focus on anything for very long. Um, and I'm trying to retrain myself. Um, so I'll just tell you about my relationship. I think for the last 30 years or 25 years, certainly, I felt like I had a relationship with a God of my understanding and certainly going through brain surgery with a nursing baby and a four-year-old, you know, what that was a really, that was a really visceral spiritual experience. Um, I did not get the thing I have always wanted um, if you know, like, you know, deus ex machina, if you took the same English classes I took in college, right? It's how I always, it means God is a machine, right? Which somehow I got the idea, thank you, that God in a silver chariot and gladiator uniform is going to come out of the, I think it's called proscenium. So clearly I have a background in drama too. You know, I love, I love drama um, and I loved drama in high school, like the productions and Somehow I got this idea that God in a gladiator uniform in a chariot should be dropped from where they keep the lights on a stage and step out of that chariot. And I would have a relationship with God that has never happened. And it didn't happen through brain surgery or any of the other big dramatic events, but, um, you know, getting to be 20 years abstinent and sober in a small area, um, and having the respect and admiration probably of a lot of people in my community that really felt like something. And it felt really good to be an old timer who knows what's going on. And I'll tell you, I've always tried to keep it real. And I have been trying to keep it real and take a back seat. And the last five years, you know, just finding out how strong and powerful my ego is and how much look good and arrogance I still have. And, um, having everything fall apart when I left my marriage and instantly got involved with somebody else. Um, and just, and, and lost my best friend, um, because my husband turned to her for companionship and support. And I'm not the victim of that. Although I feel like it a lot. Um, I lost all my standing and credibility in both of my home groups and my community. And um, I am so glad I would call my OA sponsor. And I mean, first of all, that is what just completely broke me. I think it completely broke me. I feel it took about six months of being out of my marriage to just feel completely broken open and be willing to come as a total newcomer. And I would share with my sponsor some of the things that were happening to me in my meetings and in grocery stores and on the phone. And um, she laughed, I remember her laughing and saying, this is so wonderful. They're helping you take your inventory. (laughs) They're doing the work for you, Jessica. And it didn't feel at all funny until those moments. That is something so beautiful and spiritual that we do for each other here. Um, 
it also has taught me so much of how I want to be in the rooms of OA. And if you are suffering or struggling or feeling less than, please know I know how you feel. <laughs> and um, and sometimes I feel that way too. And um, I want you to feel welcome and in the rooms of OA. And I want you to know that I spent a year in OA, my first year feeling like when, cause I would hear people laugh and say, and I thought I was the only person OA just would not work for. And then everybody would laugh. And I would have that feeling of like, yeah, but actually it's me. I am the person OA will never work for. And usually I can laugh about that because OA works for me. And I've had that a lot in the last year, you know, of oh my God, how can I be such a hideous representative of Overeaters Anonymous? Nobody in my OA group wants what I have. They cannot friggin' stand me. That's how it was a year ago. And what happened is that because of the pandemic and Zoom, all sorts of people come to our meeting that don't know what a hideous representative I am of and that abstinent people don't behave the way I behave. They just, you know, I try to share my experience, strength and hope in a meeting and not hide stuff. And um, I got asked to be your speaker because someone came to our meeting and called me up afterwards. I don't know. And um, so it's, it's just feels really important to me to share that. I know that one of the silver linings of the last few years for me is that I have had to give up all sorts of ideas about myself and about God. And I, and I also have this new, I have some real intensity about God. I am so free, freaking desperate. I am desperate and I am willing. And I thank you so much. And, you know, two years ago was awful. And a year ago was a little less awful. And right now, like, oh yeah, my landscape is kind of burned over. And also I am on the 10th step. I've worked steps one through nine very thoroughly and very carefully and my relationship with food and things I did under the influence of food didn't really factor in. I mean, they just, there's some things I get to address, but it's not about what I did when I was eating compulsively. It's about what I've done as a sober food, sober member of Overeaters Anonymous working this program and living my life to the best of my ability. And I'm so human and so flawed and so, accessible right now to recovery and um so grateful and you know how i used to say like god light this rock on fire if you're there well okay that's a real eight-year-old concept maybe and i was still doing that in my 20s and i think i've done it in the last few years and um there are flaming rocks all around me i just couldn't see them and with those flaming rock, right? Cause like God lit all sorts of rocks on fire. I just didn't recognize them. And um, there are so many beautiful sprouts of this beautiful life that I think is going to probably include um, as one of my other sponsors says, continued opportunities for growth and seeing our flaws and fallibilities. Isn't it wonderful, Jessica? Um, there are sprouts all over and this house that I live in is one of them, you know, it's just incredible. And you guys are all part of it. And I thank you so much. That is really everything I have to say. And um, I put my number. So anybody who wants to could talk to me either to make an outreach call or to carry a message of hope and recovery to me or to talk further, or if you just want to call me up and ask the kind of questions I asked, like, why is the big book all about sex? That is just ridiculous. Aren't we trying to get recovery from, you know, like they were trying to recover from alcohol and we're trying to recover from food. Why are there all those pages about sex? This is stupid. I know a little bit about that. I know a little bit about why they're in there now. Um, and I believe that the 12 steps are the path to having a relationship with a power greater than me. And I don't have to do anything that is deliberately like, here I come, God, except I do have all sorts of spiritual practices I totally forgot to talk about. So thank you so much. I love you guys all. And I'm deeply grateful.